It's a scam. Hello and welcome to episode number 15 of Grumpy Old Benz. I am your host, Darren Leal, coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of Middle America, just outside of Chicago, Illinois, where the weather is actually cooled down a little bit, but the bullets are still flying. And from America's left coast, where if the earth is a rockin', don't come a knockin', I'm Ryan Pemrose. Yeah, I saw that. A little bit of fun having an earthquake. I mean, it yeah. wasn't a huge earthquake. I mean, I have no idea how the numbering systems in earthquakes work. I know that very small variations can be massive changes in the. Yeah. I think that the, the way that they're designed is every, every point one is 10 X power or something like that. It's, it's a logarithmic scale. It, the Richter scale used to be designed for human understandability, but had some limitations and they moved to the magnitude moment scale about 10 years ago. Something that, that on no agenda, they really love to poke at like, oh, these aren't real readings anymore. Well, they are real readings. They're just on a different scale. So you can't really compare it to things from 20, 30 years ago. Right. It's different because I mean, I see something like 4.7 and it's like, well, that seems like that would be a lot. But compared to, you know, even what these sevens, like a seven and an eight are like massively different. So I have a four, 4.7 is enough to get lots of people out of bed at 3 a.m. And uh, I'm, I'm no, no change there. It's not uh, not quite enough to cause widespread damage or injury, but it was a wake up call. Like, hey, by the way, you're on a fault line. You know that, right? <laughs> you're on a fault line, and but it, don't listen to fault lines. It was, and and uh, Seattle's not the only place on the left coast that got rocked today. California, not wanting to be shown up, had a four point nine only a few hours later. Well, these things are connected. I mean, people think there's massively different areas, and they are from our viewpoint from where you are there in the Seattle area down into Southern California. But, you know, the planet's the planet and this stuff's all connected under under the ground. And sooner or later, everybody keeps saying sooner or later, we're going to have like a massive earthquake in that California area. And, uh, you know, it's really it's not an enviable thing. We always had this kind of stuff. I mean, you see what's going on in Louisiana right now. And well, it's going to suck for Californians. Well, yeah, again, this might just get my viewpoint of just send them out into the ocean. Maybe that can happen. They can be their own little utopia and that would be great, but that probably won't go quite that easy. On today's show, we're talking about something that was on your list and, and you kind of brought me over to it, which is the right to repair which in a nutshell, there's legislation trying to be passed, and it looks like it is going to be passed, that will force companies to do a few things, including making schematics for their products available, making replacement parts for their products available, because right now we're living in an era where, you know, let's just, I know we like to uh, jump on certain, you know, companies and certain products, but, you know, just using as an example and Right. That's true. Using uh, Apple as an example here, the iPhone, you know, for a long time now, if your iPhone breaks, there's really only one place you can bring that phone into to get repaired. And that's Apple. And that is the way they want it. And that's not necessarily the best thing for the consumer. And it's not necessarily the best thing even for the planet when you look at things like recycling and all that. So where do we start? Give me a primer. And what we should be looking at when it comes to right to repair. Well, the the first background is the the history of uh, well, a, a very brief overview history of all physical products ever is that companies will get together, they will produce something that they think consumers like, and then they will sell them to the consumers. And the consumers encountering a device or object that they want will buy these things they will give money for it and then they the consumer the person will have the object and will be able to use it and do whatever that is that they want with it one of the rights that they have is the right to take it apart or uh repurpose for other things physical objects are like that another right that uh people who purchase things have always had is the right to resell it this is the called the right of first sale and it is something that's actually codified uh, in v- the very earliest 
uh, version of copyright laws in the U.S. And it's also it, it's well understood all over the place that if you buy an object and you don't need it anymore, you have the ability to sell that object again to another person without needing to seek permission of the company who sold it the first time. That's it's called the right of first sale. And these rights of of owning an object, they're they're inherent to if you have this thing, you own it. They're being eroded by trying to by companies, large corporations who, as is desirable to a large corporation, they always want to control everything that goes on with things that they do. One of the big pieces of control that they love to use is is prevent you from reselling because if you can't buy any if you can't buy something used then anybody who wants one has to buy it new more money for the company that's a pretty no-brainer prevent people from repairing it because if it breaks then you have to buy a new one more money for the company prevent people from taking it apart because if you try to take it apart then somebody who's really creative and good with their hands might be able to put together another one so companies, for as long as there have been things to sell, have wanted to try to curtail these rights, but uh, courts, in, in the US at least, have constantly fallen on the side of people who purchase something have the right to take it apart, to repair it, or to sell it if they want. And the problem is that in today's digital age, the big corporations have found an end run around that allows them to curtail those rights well as jc jr in the troll room just said licensing and licenses are a big part of this and i think the concept of the internet that is the end run for a lot of the rights is that you're the companies are no longer framing it as they're selling things they're framing it as they're giving you a license to use this which by the way is utter bullshit but that's it's a fantastic legal fiction that people have managed to convince each other of well, it's the, it's the big change in ownership as well. If you don't think that the media companies were behind a lot of this stuff when it comes to back in our day, again, because we're old, we bought record albums, which I still do for music. You bought CDs for music, DVDs and Blu-ray for movies and TV shows and that kind of thing you are so old. You actually buy things on physical media. I know, and I still enjoy the physical media. I was listening to Billy Idol on vinyl yesterday. Who doesn't love a good CD? You can like put it in and play it, or you can just take it out and stare at it or rub it on your face. Or I'm sorry, go on. And, and you can rip the CD, and it's beautiful, and those bits are still there, even if the CD's out, and it's an exact physical copy, a digital copy. Everything is exactly the same, but you can't really get that with vinyl because it's physical, which is the biggest difference now between physical products and these digital products and licensing and who can own it and what you can do with it. And those lines are being blurred. But I think the big push for the internet and all of this streaming stuff were the media companies, because it used to be if I bought a CD and I liked it or didn't like it, whatever I needed five bucks, I could sell that to somebody else. Now you can't do that when you're streaming music and buying it digitally in that, but we're talking about the physical objects today. In something like the things that play your music, your phones, you know, some people still have MP3 players, believe it or not, but these devices like your tablets and your laptops, they've become, even in just the last 10 years, have become more and more built to be completely non-serviceable, non-upgradable by the end user. When I bought my Apple macbook pro back in 2008 2009 it was very easy to remove the bottom to replace the battery and it was fairly easy to remove the bottom and add or swap out memory so i mean granted this wasn't like i could swap everything out but the ability was there more and more things now and a lot of this rightfully so is being sold as, you know, to get this product small enough, we need to make, um, you know, we need to make them in such a way where this has to be soldered in, this has to be put into place to where taking it apart. You, the average person would totally destroy the device to try to take it apart. And it's, it's a reasonable excuse to have. But with that said, 
you should at least offer the people a way to get something repaired that doesn't have to go back to Apple. And that's from what I understand of this legislation. A big part of it was, you know, if the main thing, let's just say that fails on an Apple iPhone or an Apple tablet, I would guess there are two things that would mainly fail. That would be the battery and the screen. Well, there's a school of thought which says that the first thing that fails on an Apple device is putting the Apple logo and software on it. <laughs> well, now you're just being grumpy. That's but what I those do. two things are the most likely to fail. And once Apple is going to be forced, and what this legislation is going to do, they're going to say, you know what, if you're going to sell these tablets and you're going to sell these phones, by law, you're going to have to be, you're going to be forced to sell these parts to the third party, which means a consumer can buy it. And even though a lot of these consumers are never going to know or never want to have to deal with it, I know my parents, most people that I know wouldn't want to have to try to take a phone or a tablet apart and replace a screen or a battery. But I also know a lot of people and a lot of them frequent the no agenda troll room who are dudes named Ben who do this kind of stuff all of the time that do computer repair, build machines that are more than able to do these jobs. And maybe you want to make this a full-time business. Maybe you just want to make this a part-time business, but if they can start buying Apple screens and set up a little business in whatever town they're in, because there's not an Apple store everywhere and they can do the repairs on these devices. This is good for the economy in that area. It's also good for the consumer. It's only bad for Apple, right? You've yeah, you've just hit on the big threat to Apple's repair business model when they can be the only people to repair. They have a monopoly. A, a company that has a monopoly on something can charge whatever they want for it, and consumers will have to pay. Period. In general, copyrighted works and copyrighted things like uh, devices uh, already have a monopoly. But one of the few places that we've been trying that the public has been trying to push back on the monopoly is is repair. You, know, you mentioned, well, what what if somebody owns it and wants to fix it themselves? And that that is a valid point. But then the argument immediately becomes, well, what if the person doesn't know how to fix it because they're complicated? And exactly. The idea is not just I should have the right to fix these things myself. The idea is uh, I should have the right to be able to take it to anybody I want because there should be a competition market on repairing things like this. Do you remember uh, a site... Five, five, ten years ago, five years ago, it's one of my favorite reads called "I Fix It." Yes, well, they're still around, aren't they? The Are ones they? that make all of the kits, I believe so. I, I believe they, they make kits. They, they for- were always they were always champions. Uh, you know, I, I like their blog because they were always champions of the right to repair. And I wasn't sure if they were still around because they've gone a little quiet, possibly because they lost. Uh, but yeah, they they've always taken and, and given out ratings for how repairable an item is. So they will actually, whenever a new consumer item comes out, they'll buy one and take it apart and then give their full step-by-step instructions on, well, how to repair certain things, but also when they tear it down, they'll give a, you know, a rating from one to 10 of how repairable is this thing? Can you, can you take it apart, put it back together? And things that will affect the rating is uh, whether you use standard screws or screws with a custom head. That that oh, was I hate hurt. those things. Uh, or or whether it uses screws at all, or if the whole thing is just glued together because you can never get the same glue. And you're absolutely right. the The business model of that site was uh, after they do the teardown, they sell kits so that if somebody needs to repair their own thing, that kit they'll be like, "Here's a an iPhone four repair kit," and that kit will contain the custom screwdriver that's needed in order to unscrew these wonky custom screws that they put in. And the entire thing, and the reason I loved it is because it is a slap in the face to a large company that believes that they have the ability to create a monopoly on repairing these devices that may or may not work. Right. You know, the funny thing about the if you have a monopoly on repairing, then uh, you have a perverse incentive to make shitty products and sell them using nothing but marketing and glamour, which might be a description for everything Apple, but I think that might be a different rant. And if there's competition in, if you don't have a monopoly on repair, then the only thing you have to lose by creating crappy products is your reputation because you're not gaining the repair anymore. And I think that that's, um, that's always good for the consumer. 
Right. And ifixit.com still around, still completely current. They still do all the teardowns. They still sell a bunch of tools and kits. And really, the tools are very important as well, because a lot of these devices, you don't know if you were just to like take a look at any phone that has come out in the last couple of years and just look at the device. It's not like there's an obvious way to take the stuff apart. So you need somebody to show you how to do this. Most often the times you need little tools that make the job a little easier, especially to keep you from destroying the device while you try to fix it, because then then you will have to go buy a whole new one. And another fun little trick that producers will put in there, some little joint where if you don't open it just the right way with just the right tool, the whole case will crack. Yeah, that's that happens. Right. It's a lot of fun. The point that I was actually uh, that I kind of wanted to make and course forgot because i'm just rambling <laughs> about i fix it though is early on they had a scale of one to ten and they had a few products that were at the near the eight nine ten end of the scale and a few products the apple iphone 3 i think got a four which is pretty low at the time and the interesting thing is that as software and hardware get more and more complicated and the the products become more miniaturized and the companies also become a little more savvy to trying to make things unrepairable. The values, the the ratings for these products have all just plummeted. And even the most repairable devices can only er, often only get six or seven. But all the big name devices now, uh, Apple is uh, the last three iPhones, I think, have all been a one or a two. Microsoft comes out with their Surface line. They were breaking in going, we make software and hardware too which they don't, but they don't realize that is, uh, you know, the surface came out with a one <laughs> the, all these things that you cannot possibly disassemble and put back together. And it's impossible to know whether the companies are intentionally putting things in that are designed to be harder to repair, or if it's just a side effect of more advanced manufacturing techniques. But it's hard not to ascribe some malice. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, in some cases, like I said, I get it. When you're making things smaller, you're going to have to do things to be able to make it smaller. So it's you're probably not going to be as easy to take things apart. You're using less screws. You're using less connectors. You're soldering stuff. You're doing everything you can because we're not talking about um, saving. You know, we're to the point to where we're talking about saving. You know, an ounce is a big deal. But there are times where I know it's done intentionally to be dicks. But by the way, I, I do have to agree with the troll room that Microsoft's fabric keyboard idea is retarded. What is a fabric keyboard? They, they had a keyboard where, you know how most keyboards, the, the keycaps are made of plastic and you push yes. on them and they, uh, this one, the entire keyboard is like a, a mild shag carpet. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite like that, but it's a keyboard where, uh, it it feels really nice when you get a brand new keyboard because it's soft on the fingers and has this fabric texture. And then after a year of typing, uh, you don't want to know what that fabric is like anymore. Yeah. When you have to steam clean your computer, you've got a problem. You definitely have a big problem. But where I saw this was with my Dell XPS 15, which is a year old now. I bought it last August. I wanted to go in and update the Wi-Fi card to an Intel one because there were problems with the latency issues, which Dell still has latency issues. They fixed it in the new version of the XPS 15. Thanks a lot. They haven't fixed it on the old one yet. So I may just end up dumping this computer after a year and getting something that's not a Dell. And, but, oh, I was going to say, and buying a brand new one, because that's exactly what they want. Right. And this would be avoid the Dell. But when I wanted to open the thing up, it's okay. There'll be another sucker come along soon enough. That's true. Somebody else will buy it. But the screws, of course, use the Torx connection, the, which is fine. The, the Torx heads rather than a Phillips because, you know, for customer convenience and all. But the worst part about these screws, and I saw this because I researched this before even attempting, was a cry from a lot of people that said, the first time you take these Torx screws out of the XPS 15, even if you're careful, you're probably going to strip the heads because they're very, very soft, which to me says the manufacturer is going, I don't want you to open this. I'm going to do everything I can to fuck with your life. If you do open it, you're going to have a bitch of a time getting the screws back in. The heads are going to strip. So 
what I did was I ordered the little set to take these screws out, and I ordered another set of the same size screws that were made, you know, that were Phillips head and weren't soft metal like the Dell. And I replaced them immediately and it worked just fine. But that's a case where there's no question about it. You're using the funky head and you're using subpar soft metal screws. There's no other, unless you can come up with a reason, there's no reason that I've been able to come up with to do that except to screw with the customer, the end customer's experience. I don't doubt there were designers on the team who were thinking exactly that because that's what you think inside of a corporation. And then you design it that way. And then you never, ever, ever mention it to anybody with the possible exception of the upper execs, because if that ever got out in an email or a quote or anything, uh, the PR would be a disaster. You did just remind me of a a buddy that I used to have who was really into uh, doing his own machining and stuff. So he had a, a little shop in his garage and uh, he had a laptop that was the most industrial thing I'd ever seen because he just kept it around forever. And uh, one of the, you know, the, the back panel had uh, behind the screen had cracked. So he pulled the whole thing off and, and replaced it with a sheet of aluminum. Nice. There, there was uh, about half the screws in the back where he needed to replace the hard drive because he wanted to upgrade. So he ended up pulling out the, the torque screws and he's like, screw these things. I hate working with these. So he just replaced them with sheet metal screws that were about the same size. And it makes sense. It was a laptop to behold. Then again, it was also one of the old <laughs> uh, IBM uh, ThinkPad or whatever, you know, the, the ones that were... All, all hewn out of a block of marble and were practically indestructible and lasted forever. You don't make devices like that anymore. Yeah, this is another concept that we had touched on on the uh, No Agenda Troll Room, available at noagendastream.com. The chat room, it's open all day, all night. We were talking about that earlier when it came to phones. As far as these markets are starting to get a little bit more flat now, people aren't buying them as much. People are keeping these devices for much longer times because let's be honest. Most people with their phones are using them as a camera and using them to text people. Most people don't even use them as a phone. So the concept that we need these things to keep getting faster and faster and more powerful is really starting to wane. And it's the same kind of a thing with computers. Most people don't need to necessarily buy a higher power device. It's just that they're being forced to upgrade because something's eventually going to break and you can't easily repair that, which is why you're buying new. So that really, again, if as far as in that supply chain, as far as in the corporate mind, when they're coming up with this stuff, the Apple MacBook, I mean, I'll give Apple a lot of crap because they need it, and including the fact that they won't let me update the operating system and they, they do, but the hardware on this device that's 10 years old still is fast and fine for doing anything like surfing the web, basic audio recording, all of that. I don't need more. So the concept is going to, these companies are going to be looking at something fairly interesting at this point, which is the increase in power. Even the shrinking down of size is becoming less and less necessary. Remember when we were kids, <laughs> I, um, well, there vaguely. were no cell phones, but but do you remember it not too long ago before the smartphone I, revolution? I'm old enough that I went to college before everybody had a cell phone. Yeah, I, it, I was. It was oh, I had one, but they were big. I, I was amongst the last people, one of the last people to ever go to college where everybody in the room had no choice but to pay attention in class because they couldn't open up their phone and start tapping into Facebook or Instagram. And if you wanted to record it, my God, you had to use micro cassettes. It was, yeah, it was horrible yeah. times. And if I, if you wanted to do a computer project, you had to go to the computer lab. I mean, you look at what's available now and it, it's absolutely nuts, but cell phones, the original thing with the cell phone was they were huge and we got to get them smaller. We got to get them smaller. We got to get them smaller. Now the phones are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't really understand the, uh, well, I get it because they're not being used as phones any longer. They're tablet PCs. Having that smallest phone is what you wanted. Now you want a device, which is basically, like you said, you're replacing a laptop. You're going out and you're, you want the larger screen. So we're getting to a point to where the technology that's available today is probably going to be fine for 95% of uses 10 years from now which is why this repair stuff is really important 
that these companies can't build in one little time bomb, no matter what it is, you know, that, oh, well, in eight years, the Wi-Fi card's going to fry. You know, we there's something in there that it could be software. It could be hidden. We're going to overheat something. It's going to break. And, you know, it's such a pain to take a, and repair the stuff that, of course, they're going to go for new. And, of course, batteries are the main thing. And it's a it's a blurry line between something will break because this thing is so amazingly complex that nobody can understand the whole thing, which is true for a lot of these devices. It's a blurry line between that and actual malice in the form of planned obsolescence. Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely both. I mean, that's why companies like iFixit are great because they will show you exactly how to take it apart. They will sell you the kits to do so. And like you said, they'll warn you if this is going to be a real bear to maybe you just want to avoid that. I don't know if anybody's going to this site anymore and making their buying decisions because of it, but at least it gives you a lot of information. on if you do have a problem, what to expect. And that also, it's kind of like these websites now that are out there that let you look up maintenance on a car things that need to be done and what you should expect to pay in the general area where you're living which is uh, cars are another big part of this whole right to repair thing when oh yeah i was a kid again going back problems with cars were fairly simple if you knew what you were doing the parts even though i mean moving an engine and stuff obviously was heavy and you needed special machinery but there was a lot of maintenance that was able to be done on the end user side now with with computers things have become a whole lot harder but we're kind of uh, you know combating that a little bit with these little what are they called ob devices that you plug directly into the port of your car and you have an app on your cell phone and the next time your car check engine light comes on which happened to my wife's car a couple of weeks ago you plug the thing in, you open up the app, it tells you what the code is, it tells you what that could possibly mean, and the problem in this case was a faulty gas cap, so the gas cap was starting to leak. Bought a new one online for, you know, 12 bucks or whatever it was, and the code cleared and everything was fine. Without these devices to tell you what that check engine light means, there's a lot of people, I have no doubt that take this car to a you know, somewhat unreputable place that see, oh, well, there was a code and they can tell you whatever the hell they want and say, well, no, you need to know who's he wants it widget and we replace it for $150 sign here. And so having some of this technology is good and understanding what's going on, but still cars, you know, I, besides replacing the gas cap, I, I don't know what else more I would be able to do. Well, the interesting bit about that port and those codes is that the they came into existence the as a standard. Uh, you know, you can do that with almost any car, precisely because it came became a standard because that came out of a, a right to repair controversy. I, I mean, I don't think they called it that way back in the nineties, but it, there was people complaining that they had a car and these cars are getting more and more computerized. And, you know, it wasn't even close to what it is today, but you would take your car into the dealership and they'd say, yep, you need some more windshield fluid. That'll be $300. And (laughs) you take it into an independent repair shop and they'd say, well, yeah, your car has a computer in it and we don't actually have the ability to work on that because the automaker hasn't published the codes necessary or, or the interface necessary. and so." Uh, out of that, which uh, I, I think bears some discussion anyway, uh, but what came out of it was the standard port that you can now plug in and use a, a an aftermarket app in order to decode what's going on in your car, precisely because there was a big backlash and the automakers said, well, okay, in that case, we're going to make this standard. It's insufficient now, but it was actually a pretty big leap forward in the ability. It, it wasn't you know, it was never about the individual being able to plug in a thing into their own car. It was always about an independent garage being able to work on this thing. Again, competition in repair shops, because like I said, you know, everybody's had that experience where you go to the dealership and they say, yeah, well, we're sorry. You need, you know, a new 
spark plug or a new injector or your tires need rotating and then they charge you 20 times market price for it because they're the dealership and fuck you right and this is why we want the independents out there to be able to do repairs and it makes sense i mean this is one of the times where a law actually seems to make sense to force companies that are selling products to at least do the bare minimum it doesn't have to be a law that does this Uh, a good old consumer backlash works just as well without putting bad laws on the books but go on well that's true because let's be honest if apple was the only cell phone company say that wasn't allowing their parts to be sold and everybody soon figured out that well your android phone's batteries go bad too and your screens break too but the cost to fix it is one-tenth of what it is to do the same thing on an apple device yes then people will pay you know, they'll, they'll make their vote very well known with the money they're spending. And a lot of people, I think, would still go to Apple. But that's, uh, you know, that's another complete and utter rant. But it, it does make sense, except for the fact that the companies, like you said, they want to be 100% in control. And I can understand that to a certain extent to where a company you know, like Apple is going to say, when things are under warranty, especially when things are out of warranty, I think you're in a completely different you know ball game but before that warranty is over if i'm apple if i'm you know dell if i'm anybody and somebody else opens that device up to do a repair and then something else breaks you know i understand that you may have voided your warranty so although i'm not sure if there's anything that would really go wrong on a cell phone you know while it's under warranty but again warranty repairs are not easy for everybody and i know we take a lot of this stuff for granted because you know i have apple stores around here i have other you know plenty of big box retailers but there are people that you know you can buy an iphone and then travel back to a country where the iphone will work but there's no apple store there to repair it and then what well a warranty is really just a an agreement uh, although it's been legislated so now it's a coerced agreement but an agreement on the part of the people making the device that they will maintain it at their cost if something goes wrong that was not intended. Uh, that's how warranties have worked for everything. So you know, I, I, you always hear people, oh, you can't open it because you'll void your warranty. You'll void your warranty. Well, that really just means that you are no longer entitled to have the company who made it fix things, which if there are alternatives and somebody else who's willing to do the fixing, then why not have them do it? I, I, I've never understood the tremendous fear and trepidation around the idea of voiding a warranty. Well, that's because for electronic stuff, especially, you know, um, it's going to break usually right, right after you get it. Electronics aren't a, a thing that normally breaks two or three years down the line. If like, it's going to break within like the first six weeks, or it's probably going to work for six years on most things. Although, you know, again, batteries a little bit different. If you drop your computer or your laptop, you're phone you may break a screen but i mean i think with the warranty the main thing is you know you feel like the company is standing behind it the last thing you want to do is have a small problem say with your laptop that is a quick five dollar fix you know in my case i swapped out the wi-fi card in the dell and i think the the wi-fi card was like 20 bucks something like that so i opened it up myself swapped in a new 20 dollar part now let's say the whole motherboard the main board blows and it's still under warranty but then dell goes well no this has already been opened so obviously your warranty is no longer good that's the only place i see that as as making sense well that that is what we refer to as a slimy business tactic uh if if it (laughs) doesn't actually impact their ability to repair then they shouldn't be being dicks about it but of course you know people companies will be dicks because that's it's profitable uh, and the $5 repair, the $5 fix is absolutely not what the warranty is for. What the warranty is for is to make it, make sure that if you buy the thing and a month later, because of a manufacturing defect, it entire, it becomes a brick that you can get a replacement or something The the warranties really are there. And the, the main reason they were legislated is they're really there to Force the companies to not skimp and sell you shitty stuff that's going to break in the first week because it it disincentivizes companies from skimping on manufacturing 
because they'll have to pay for if they do shitty stuff. Sadly, it doesn't always work that way, but. Well, yeah. Well, that's again, why most of the time you can return the stuff to a retailer within 30 days, which is why a lot of people, how do you feel about the extended warranty too? Because I work for a retail company, Circuit City back in the day. It's a scam. And the ex- it is. It's a complete and utter and total scam. And it was basically just free money. And the company I'm sorry, really I, got pissed when you didn't sell it. I, I didn't use my best John C. DeVark. It's a scam. <laughs> you know, it is. It really is for the price that they charge. Again, for the things that they charge it on. So, you know, I understand the the regular warranties. And I, I do think that people have the right to have products that they should be able to repair. But I also understand the technology. There's really a, there really is a, you know, a yin and a yang of this. Because there are certain products that are so small that you know you're never going to be able to deal with them yourself and there's some things that are just way easier just to replace and i think companies like apple do that a lot which again is a real pain in the ass you know if you if you set up your phone and you know you're gonna get a thousand pictures in there and you're you're doing all your apps and everything set up and you go into the apple store because your phone got bricked you know, quite often they just want to go, well, okay, you, you're, it's under warranty. Here's a new one rather than repairing because that's easier for them. But of course, then you have a problem of if you weren't backing the stuff up, uh, you know, it, it gets complicated. So I want to go back uh, a few years and I, 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 we haven't done it yet this episode. So I need to go back a few years and find something to blame the Democrats for, because that's, <laughs> it, that seems to be a theme here. Um, a lot of the problems with, uh, it's not just physical objects, but uh, that it, there was a 1998 act called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Are you familiar with this? Quite familiar with the DMCA. So that's what everybody's getting sued for downloading music the, with. The DMCA, in a nutshell, it uh, well the the big thing, the real lasting effect is that it criminalized uh, working around any kind of software locks. Even if the purpose was not to break into anything, even if the purpose was not illegal, uh, it made made it so that it didn't matter why you were doing it. It didn't matter how you did it. If you broke any software locks, no matter how trivial, then you were immediately breaking the law. And uh, that is terribly egregious. And that particular law has been used to beat consumers over the head for 21 years now. God, it's been a while. And when I said blame Democrats, I uh, what I mean is that 1998, the DMCA was signed into law by Bill Clinton and he was a Democrat. So obviously it's a Democrat's fault, despite the fact that Congress in 1998 was fully Republican and therefore both houses of, Cong- of both parties are complete douchebags in this. But hey, you know, why let facts get in the way? Well, and the, the DMCA comes into really into play with this kind of stuff because of things like it was Apple, unless I'm having a complete aneurysm here, but it was Apple where if a third party swapped out a piece on a, I think it was an iPhone, maybe iPads as well. If a, you know, if a hardware update upgrade was done. So if you had a part that went bad, something was changed in that device. And then it was not then blessed by Apple itself, because it looks at the devices. And as we've talked about in the privacy show, these little pieces in your computers often have their own serial numbers. The device can look and it knows, let's just, you know, say the CPU of your iPhone. The phone knows what that CPU ID number is supposed to be. If that goes bad and you have a new one to to put in there, technically the phone should work, but the software is going, oh, ID number wrong. Ah, you got a brick. Everything stops working. And that's a big problem with this right to repair stuff right now is that not only is it that the companies aren't making these parts available readily, it's that they're putting little Trojans in there where if you do make a change, it's going to brick the device. And that's one of the ways, yeah, that the DMCA and and laws like it are being used as a bludgeon to hold control over products long long after the sale and and what it actually is is companies use the dmca to make an end run around and to invalidate the right of first sale that i was talking about earlier uh the dmca uh is well the way that it's used is 
a company will produce a product that should otherwise be completely resellable, repairable, etc. And then they will put one component that has a piece of software in there. And then that software will have trivial encryption in it. And suddenly, in order to repair it, you have to break the trivial encryption, which is easy and is something that almost anyone can do with a simple tool. But you violated the law because you broke the encryption. And suddenly, what you're doing is illegal and you can be sued for trying to repair your own thing or trying to sell your thing. Uh, you know, a fine example is when somebody sells you an item. And, and by the way, the, the, the big part of the legal loophole is, uh, especially with software, is that uh, you're no longer being sold objects, which can be repaired, which can have first sale. Instead, you're being handed an object which is owned by the company and you're being sold a license to use the object. And licenses are not burdened with any of those silly consumer rights that, that allow consumers to exercise things with what they own. So they can give you a license to, uh, here, you have a license to use this iPhone for as long as we decide that you can. And that's very generous of them, but that means that they don't believe it's your iPhone anymore and therefore you don't have the right to do all those things that you should have with objects. And in the troll room, JC Jr. points out also that it, uh, something that AP, HP and Dell reps have told him no PC manufacturers actually fix anything. They just replace components or the whole thing, which I think we're aware of that. When we talk about right to repair, I don't think we mean let's take this iPhone apart well, on, and on fix one the level, piece. It's, on one level, repairing a, a malfunctioning object it involves replacing something that is not working it, it no matter what it is and that might be replacing the battery that might be replacing a cracked screen but you, i mean most repairs involve taking a component of something and switching it out for a new one so the distinction right. is we don't we don't look at repairing the component it's not like oh we're taking our you know say we break the keyboard in half we're not taking that keyboard and fixing it there, there are very few repairs to devices that involve taking it apart, rearranging something inside, putting back together all of the pieces and they work. I mean, it's theoretically possible if you drop it and something comes loose, then if you take it apart and reattach it, then you're using all the same pieces. But that's not the most common form of repair. Usually something breaks inside. And that's the piece you're looking at fixing. And that's the fun of having any of these devices is that you need a little bit of knowledge. And most people don't have them, which is why, I mean, I understand, again, the devices are small when it comes to, again, cell phones where you don't have screws on them to make it easy. I mean, I guess you still could. It wouldn't add to the the heft of the device, but it wouldn't look pretty if there were four screws on the back of your iPhone that you could simply take those out and lift the back panel off I, and have I anything it, I think possibly. it would actually be pretty awesome if they were sheet metal screws, but... <laughs> See, this is the, maybe this is the phone you need to, to come up with. You need to design. You need to get the Bemrose cell phone line out. They're very... Very old school, very non-cutting edge, every part able to be replaced by the end user by just unscrewing a couple screws and, and dealing with a, although dealing with small cables as somebody with really big hands and shitty eyes, not fun. Replacing the Wi-Fi card in the Dell laptop, the little connectors, the size that's, of that's why you use a the grain of rice. The tried and true technique that people have been using since when we were young which is if something electronic needs to be fixed, you go find a kid. <laughs> That's true. You got to find somebody with really small hands, good eyes. You get a big magnifying glass and do that. And that was even, I talked about setting up my new turntable, which the counterweight had, I didn't even, at first I didn't even see because it, you have to, there's a little uh, bit of fishing line for back of lack of a better term, but it was almost, you couldn't even see that it was there. And there was like a little loop at the end which you had to put around a post and then it holds itself in place by just, you know, the force of pulling down on that post. And that was a real pain in the ass. And that's what dealing with a lot of this electronic stuff. I used to build my own desktops back in the day because it was relatively easy. The cases were huge. The cards that were put into it, which, you know, again, it, back then the cards were everything from video cards, audio cards, uh, you know, the, Everything was a card and there was enough space between them. And it was a nice big screw that, you know, kept the thing in the, the device itself, in the case itself. Not anymore. Everything has gotten so packed in. 
everything has gotten so much smaller, which again has made it harder to repair. It's made a whole a whole new business for people selling the parts to take these things apart. I remember when the iPhone first came out, the it had to be iFixit that the big business in selling the that's where the word spudger came from, wasn't it? These little plastic things to stick in the side of the iPhone to prop the parts apart from each other to get inside of it. That is the first time that I heard the word spudger. And like most people, I had myself a nice, satisfying giggling fit over the name. (laughs) But, you know, hey, you needed this stuff. I mean, this is this created a whole new market of products, which I I think is a good thing. And I do applaud the companies like iFixit that are going out there and trying to make this stuff at least somewhat friendly for people to do this stuff on their own or for the dudes named Ben who want to run a little repair business. These guys are doing the work of the Lord because when a new phone comes out by whatever company, these guys that can repair this, that have the ability to repair these things, they don't know what's in there. They don't necessarily know if there's something new about taking them apart. Like you said, some of these companies put a thing in where, well, if you don't just take this apart, just right. The case is going to crack the iFixit guys and other people do the same thing as well. Every these new devices, they come out and they buy one basically to destroy one. You know, I mean, maybe they'll be able to put it back together, but they go in and they disassemble the whole thing as much as they can. And they put up very detailed notes on what they did. They put up very detailed notes. A lot of times is the first time you really know what's in one of these devices. Somebody has to take it apart and look at every piece. And a lot of times, you know, it's, it's not as easy as you might think to be able to tell which chip is in here or whatnot. So they have to do a lot of research, but they do the work to make it easier for people to go through and then repair that. So you have to applaud a company like that. And I have bought in kits from them in the past, just for the fact that it was like one of the original value for value. Cause they're like, well, okay, here's the information you're going to need on fixing your whatever phone. And you don't have to buy the kit from them. They're giving you all the information on how to do it, which is to me way more valuable than the little plastic spudger and the little, you know, um, screwdrivers or whatever that they include. But the fact that they put that information out there, you went, okay, I'll buy your $15 kit because I'm going to need this stuff anyway. And I may as well support the people that are putting the information out there. I wanted to talk about a, uh, a right to repair controversy that is not really that surprising that it came out somewhere. Uh, but but is of course completely surprising to the people in Silicon Valley who, uh, being from the center of the city and having everything handed to them, uh, were honestly surprised to learn that farmers exist. And <laughs> the right to repair controversy that has come up in just the last five years is John Deere, which is uh, a company which is practically synonymous with farming equipment. They've they've always kind of owned the big farming equipment market and a big part part of the reason for that is that they make really good stuff but sometime in the last decade half decade uh john deere started behaving like a silicon valley company they started putting oh well as with any large complicated thing they started putting software into their devices in this case, device being a a three ton tractor that costs you know forty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars, and they put software on a computer in there, and they started licensing that software. And the result of licensing the software it means that uh, they can decide whether or not the license is transferable, which means they can decide whether or not you're allowed to sell your hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment. Uh, wait, wait, wait. You can still sell that $100,000 piece of equipment. It may just stop working. Is that what happens if the license doesn't? What what, I mean, what actually happens is that the person on the other end may not have a license to do it and whatever the effect of that is. I'm not aware that John Deere tractors actually phone home to try to get uh, uh, servers permission in order to run like some devices do these days. But uh, the real problem comes from the fact that these are uh, hardworking machines that run in difficult real-world conditions on a farm, uh, on varied terrain. They're doing physical labor. The result is that shit breaks. Like with any large motorized vehicle, you need to repair things. And John Deere 
has decided that only officially licensed John Deere places are able to repair your tractor. And, you know, stop me if this sounds familiar for the last 40 minutes worth of phones we were talking about. That's exactly what they're doing. But the difference is that this is an investment, you know, multiple years worth of profits will go into investing in one of these things. And now this, you, you go and buy it and you, uh, you till a field or, or harvest crops for a year and a half and something breaks and you suddenly don't have the ability to repair it on your own because John Deere says you have to take it in. And there have been stories that come out about uh, somebody's, a farmer, you know, the way that, that farming works is that uh, you get a, a period of about maybe two weeks where you have to harvest all your fields. And there have been stories coming out where a tractor will break and the nearest John Deere official repair place is three hours away in another city and they don't have a flatbed available and in they so they'll have to call and spend a crap load of money sending it in and because it's harvest season the repair shop is busy and next thing you know four weeks have gone by and you just lost an entire year's worth of crop because of one rotor or something and John Deere has decided that you can't repair that you you can't repair this on your own which i guess if if your tractor breaks at the third day of of uh harvest season and you can repair it in your own shop or you can call somebody out to repair it you might lose a day but when you have to send your tractor in now you've lost your whole harvest and that is destroying family farms well and i'm the question here would be is John Deere the only one that can? They're the only ones that make the parts, so you can't. They're not selling the parts to anybody else either. Well, no, it, is it, the- it it goes back to the DMCA. The software in there is trivially encrypted in such a way that if you ever try to do anything to your tractor, and and one of the things you know, one of the the quote unquote illegal things that a lot of people do is they will actually uh, sell tuning kits that you can flash onto the software which will change up the way that it works, usually for different climates, different elevations, that sort of thing. But John Deere has, has blocked all of that and says, no, our software is copyrighted and you can't u- do this. And therefore, you are not allowed to do anything. You know, the, the, the software on these things is such that you have to modify the software whenever you replace a timing belt. And, <laughs> and that's something well, that can be done in, in a half hour in your own shop. But now you have to come up with some way to convince the software to reset itself. And when it's illegal to do that without taking your entire tractor to the next city, um, yeah, this is turning into a real problem. And it's actually uh, the, the John Deere controversy is becoming the driving force behind a lot of right to repair laws that, that you brought up. You know, the phones were the driving force for a while, but everybody has a phone and they're complicated and most people don't care about it as long as it runs Instagram and Facebook. But for these tractors, it is literally whether or not they will stay in business another year. Well, and cars are going the same way, too, especially with things like Tesla. If Tesla actually ends up sticking around, which I'm not necessarily sure they will. Tesla is a is a car made by a Silicon Valley software company, and they are they are good at the software and they're not as good at the car part. But some people like that. It's very shiny. So overall, we've got a kind of a melding here of software and hardware issues. And we're, this is a kind of a whole new thing to where the software is restricting the ability for you to do things with the hardware. And that is relatively something new that we haven't had to deal with before. It can definitely be used for nefarious things. And uh, what we're seeing here is, like I've said, is, is software licenses. Uh, which is a a new thing for the modern age is is you don't own when you buy software you just license it and that is a huge boon for the large corporations that want to continue to control their product in violation of the first sale doctrine and uh, you know we we've only talked about physical objects here because uh digital only objects uh you know an mp3 or a piece of software we're we're not even talking about that because because of the legal loophole of licenses those objects have pretty much always been lost to us uh you've never been able to download 
a piece of software and say, I own this software because copyright has always been used as a bludgeon to say, no, no, no. The person who write it continues to own and control it. And because, well, you can feel like you own that copy, but you have one you no right though. to you, resell legally it. Legally speaking, you don't own the copy. You own the license. And uh, early on, there was at least the concept or, you know, even if only informally that people would say, well, uh, I got this on a CD. So if I give the CD away, I can resell the software. And even that has gone away completely because nowadays, even when you buy something on CD, uh, half the time, it's a digital download code that you got on the CD. And, that- and you know what? I do have a digital download code. Just as an aside, yeah. I bought the uh, Billy fucking idol live on vinyl it, and I already have it on that, flack. Is that his I have new stage a name? Billy fucking idol to a go. That's the name of the album, which I thought the name of the album was BFI for Billy fucking idol. That is awesome. And I thought it was great. But if somebody likes Billy idol and they want an MP3 version, I have a download card sitting right here that I'm never going to use. So just reach out. If you're the first one that emails Darren at grumpy old Ben's, I'll send you the code. You can download some Billy fucking idol live. Just another perk. And that download code is an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, If you actually owned the copy that you had, you would just download the MP3 and then you could give the MP3 to somebody else. But that's illegal because of software licenses and copyrights. And it's even illegal to try to work around that because thank you, DMCA and Screw you, Democrats uh, and Republicans, uh, Republican Congress and a Democrat president. I do have a question for you, though, that, that comes to mind with this John Deere thing, which just popped into my mind now. So if you're selling a tractor, anything like this big physical object that can't be repaired due to the fact that there's software involved, what happens if John Deere goes out of business and why would anybody buy a product? that has that kind of a time bomb built into it. I know you can make the case John Deere has been around for a billion years, but that's a hell of a time bomb. If John Deere goes out of business, then uh, this is speculation, but uh, if they do go out of business, if somehow mystically, first of all, the people who run the company don't give a fuck, so they don't plan on that. Uh, The, uh, what what actually happens is that you end up getting uh, hackers who will illegally break through as much of the software as they can, and they will usually come up with ways. This is what's happened with uh, abandonware uh, of software a lot, is is that the the company that owns and produced a piece of software will go out of business and then disband, and then there's literally nobody left to exercise control. And sometimes there's still uh, digital locks on this software, and it's illegal to try to break those digital locks, which means the only legal thing to do is to just uninstall it and forget that the software ever existed. Now, people don't want to do that. So what usually happens is somebody will do something illegal and crack it open and distribute a patch that says, if you apply this crack, the software will continue working. And I honestly applaud that because that is making it's it's preventing parts of our culture from being destroyed because. Uh, of of some company's greed and unwillingness to plan ahead to the future where they're not willing or interested in exercising complete control over a product. Another fun product that has uh, exactly the same fate, and and this this is going to go into my my standard Microsoft bashing segment, which I think is becoming a, a real staple of the Grumpy Old Ben's show, uh, is... Yes, you know what? It needs, it needs a jingle. So if you're <laughs> listening, John Fletcher, we need a... Microsoft sucks, something like that jingle. I have a device. It is, uh, you you remember back in the day when iPods were the greatest thing ever. You would load all your MP3s onto an iPod and then you listen to it. And uh, it was before everybody was permanently connected to streaming services forever. So you actually had to carry the media around with you. During that era, I had a Zune. uh, And it was, (laughs) actually, I still have it. Uh, the Zune is, in in terms of audio quality, the Zune is far superior to the iPod, in my opinion. And uh, if you think that I'm wrong, then fight me, bro, because you're wrong. However, uh, the Zune, I mean, there there were downsides to it. For example, the user interface was ass. But the real problem with it is, uh, you know, one one of the downsides to the iPod is that the only way to get things on and off was to run software called iTunes. 
and people, yes, which is why I stopped using people it. generally didn't like iTunes all that much because for one thing, it had all the usability of a spreadsheet uh, with the, it, it, it was, it was not a, a happy software. Well, no, any, it never made sense. It was not, it was not user friendly to get music from your device. The uh, iTunes to be user unfriendly. Uh, if, if you think that iTunes was bad, you haven't used the Zune software. Uh, the Zune software was kind of a, a reaction to iTunes in that it, it's the farthest thing from a, a spreadsheet that you can get. Everything is big blocky icons with styles and designs and swirls and, and everything is impossible to get to because it takes 12 clicks and a lot of scrolling because they don't, you know, there's not a list of anything to be found anywhere in there. And I mean, the software is terrible. It's, it's just fucking awful. But the Zune software, because of the DRM encryption built into the firmware on the Zune device, the Zune software was literally the only possible way to get files on and off the Zune device. I still have a perfectly great working Zune device, and I probably continued to use that thing for five more years after Microsoft abandoned the Zune entirely because uh, it is still fantastic for listening to podcasts. The The device itself, it's great audio quality. It's uh, Even the device UI isn't that terrible. I, I mean, I, it gets me what I need. I can load up. I can create my own playlist from the device, which is not entirely common. But Microsoft, back in Windows 7, I think, uh, they, they stopped working on the Zune software. And it's only a 32-bit app, and it ran on Windows 7. And as the, as the march of technology went on, it became more and more difficult to install this Zune software. And at some point, it just stopped working. And nobody at Microsoft, there's no company or there's no, no product group at Microsoft that even exists anymore to care about that. It's just some software vault i i assume the source code is in an archive somewhere but it the zune software is abandonware and the problem is i have a fantastic device that is still quite capable of playing podcasts but i do not have the capability of putting files on the device anymore because the only possible software that microsoft ever would allow to ever interface with this device they've abandoned and that's a real shame because it's a nice device, but now it's a brick. Which sucks. That's why my wife still uses a little SanDisk clip, or maybe it was a clip or clip plus. The thing has to be over a decade old. It's the size of, well, smaller than a matchbox. This thing is super small and it just damn works. It has an SD card slot, and to get stuff on or off of the device, you plug it in via USB cable. And you drag and drop. And, and it, it uses the open USB storage protocol, which is why it will always continue to work until the device dies. And it was it was a design decision with Zune that they use an encrypted protocol, which makes it illegal to even try to decrypt it. And, and speaking of the device dying or not dying, it still has like 96% battery capacity because when you charge it up, it tells you what it is. And it, it doesn't go to 100 anymore, but it's, it's still into the 90s, which is impressive to me especially due to the fact that a few years ago, since it is so small that it wound up going through a washing and drying cycle and still works. That's, that's amazing. That's how I lost my first two <laughs> Fitbits. <laughs> I was, you know, once it, once it happened, my wife's like, there's no way it's still going to work. It's like, I plugged it in, charge it up. It's like, yep. <laughs> Doesn't even look like it <laughs> hurt it at all. It just came out really, really clean. So this is, again, if you're looking at buying products, this right to repair, the ability to repair, knowing the software that's involved is an important thing because it is ridiculous that you have hardware, in your case, a little MP3 player, or I mean, worse yet, a $100,000 tractor, that at some point, the software unavailability is going to make the hardware useless. That's not a good thing for the consumer at all. I'm going to I'm going to leave you off with uh, an email pro tip that I, I actually got from uh, one of my old, uh, a good friend, uh, he, he went by the handle Vermi. I don't know uh, how he's doing these days, but the, the tip is put this in the signature line of, of your emails. The, the line was this email 
is quad rot 13 encrypted. Reading it is a violation of the DMCA. <laughs> Because uh, if you're familiar with Rot 13, then I don't need to explain the joke. But basically, if you Rot 13 twice, you get the same thing back. But that technically counts as encryption, which means that you're, if, if you Rot 13 twice or you Rot 13 four times, your message is encrypted. And never mind that somebody can read it because it's exactly the same plain text. It is the weakest encryption you can possibly have. But because of the DMCA, you are violating the law because I decided to put this thing through encryption. And I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And I love grumpy old Ben humor. It's yeah. So just remember anytime that you read something from me, you might be breaking the law. And even if you're not, it's probably seditious. <laughs> that is probably true. And there's no, no donations today, but if we go on the value for value thing, obviously, uh, people didn't like the last episode nobody reached out to us but if you'd like to do we, such we things you get, can go to grumpy we old we did Benz. get a kind note on the last episode from carolyn blaney of hog story uh which i we we definitely appreciate thank you it's glad that it's glad to have listeners it's glad yes i'm <laughs> i'm happy we are glad to we have are glad listeners. to have listeners uh to to this day i continue to be surprised that anybody likes this show but as long as you guys keep liking it we're gonna keep ranting Hey, we just like to have fun. We like to talk about things that are not what is going on in the news today, but things that may be related to topics going on in the news and look at them in a way in a much bigger picture kind of a thing and try to figure out where we're going. I mean, we rarely can figure out answers, but, you know, it's fun to speculate. And who needs answers? I have opinions. That's all that's gotten me through the last 40 plus years. (laughs) Plenty of opinions and not afraid to share them. But you've been wrong at one point or another. No, I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. So if you like what you're hearing, grumpyoldbens.com, subscribe. You can do that on any of these iTunes, Android, all these. And if you if you use one of these places that lets you give a rating on a show, giving us a good rating helps. I mean, please don't give us a bad rating. If you think we suck, just tell us. We'd be more than happy to listen. Darren at grumpyoldbens.com or Ryan at grumpyoldbens.com. Until next time, I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, where it's a beautiful summer day. And from the earthquake prone left coast of America, where the answer to the question, what's shaken is everything. I'm Ryan Bemrose. <laughs> Stay safe, my friend. <laughs>